0: Well, we're in a series in Nehemiah, in case you didn't know. And uh, we're in the seventh part of it. We're in chapter two. We're going to end up finishing chapter two, Lord willing, today. We're going to learn how to speak truth. We're going to learn how powerful it is when we speak truth. And not all of us are really that proficient or adept at it. We need counsel. We need the Word of God to teach us. How to be able to speak to people whose lives are in ruin. So, what I've been doing in this series, and what I want to do again this morning, is ask you to to answer this question Whose face comes to mind, and it could be your own, but whose face comes to your mind when you think of somebody whose life is in ruin? who's made a mess of their life, whose walls are down, broken down into rubble, whose face just came to mind. And what I've been trying to do is gently, I hope, implore you that if nobody's face is coming to mind, you're likely not living the Christian life the way you should, And that, my friends, is straight out of Isaiah 61. Jesus Christ has built a foundation. He has invited us into being those who restore walls and build streets of peace. That's our mission. Whose face just came to your mind? You know, Andrew, my six-year-old, woke up Friday morning. He was so excited. He was going to go spend the day at a new friend's house. And he said to me, sitting in my lap, and he said to me, Dad, my friend, he's got a huge scar on his back. And I said, really? Why? He goes, I don't know, but it's pretty cool. <laughs> I don't know if his friend would say it was pretty cool. I said, well, you've got to go get the story. When you go over there, ask him, what happened? How did you get this scar? Listen, girls, I don't know about you, but guys, scars are trophies. We like them. We don't hide them. I know ladies, concealer, all that stuff. I understand that. Guys, these are our battle scars, right? These are things that we've gone through. These are exciting. We like to tell the story. When I was a kid, we used to get all the guys together and we used to tell what happened with this scar. I have a scar on my thumb and that went all the way down to my thumbnail because at the time I was in eighth grade and I was the manager for our varsity basketball team and my job As ignoble as it was, was during halftime, I had to have oranges cut because the coach thought that oranges at halftime excelled your performance. I forgot to cut them. Coach says, where's the oranges? I said, I don't know, but I'll get them right away. And I was cutting them like a madman and cut right through my thumb. I don't know if anybody really wanted to eat one of those oranges after that. But that's a battle scar. That's a wound. That's a scar that I could tell a story about. Listen, God allows us to have scars in our lives. There's nobody here without scars. People just might not see them. But when a scar comes and God heals that scar, we have now a story to tell. We've got a story to tell about our God. I'm in the hospital this last week with Sharon Stanzianzi. A week ago, Sharon, who's been in need and on a list for a kidney transplant, gets a call Sunday morning at 3 a.m., saying, get to the hospital, you're going to get your blood work, you're going to get prepped, we found a kidney for you, and we're going to put it in Monday, the following day. Well, I'm not going to tell you the rest of the story, because I want Sharon to testify, but it's an amazing story that goes way beyond just a perfect match of a kidney being provided. As great as that is, there's a lot more to the story that speaks of God's power and His goodness, and I hope you're going to hear it from her own lips. We have scars in our lives. And when God heals them, they are stories to tell to testify of His goodness. That's the power of speaking truth. What we're going to learn this morning is that we need to learn to speak truth to each other. We need to learn to speak truth about our God. And we need to learn to speak truth to those who oppose us. And as we return to Nehemiah, let me refresh your memory. Jerusalem is a city that's in ruin. Listen, it's been in ruin for over ninety years, almost a hundred. Now you might not that, that might not strike you too powerfully, but I want you to think about this. Generation after generation, living in and around Jerusalem. The city is in ruin, the walls are in rubble, the gates are burned. You walk into your city because the temple is alive, sacrifices are being made, the worship of God is there, but you've got to walk through rubble. You've got to walk through constant reminder that your life is a mess, your city is a mess. Listen to a Jew, if the city of Jerusalem's a mess, you're a mess of a people. If it's ruined, you're a ruined people. That's the power of their city. That's the honor and glory of Jerusalem to a Jew it was everything for over 90 years their glory their honor their city has been a mess all right now listen you got to climb into the story how many of you come from generationally dysfunctional homes Over and over, generation after generation, it seems like things are a mess. Well, do you believe that God can interrupt that with his grace? That's what grace does. It changes you from generational past to future hope. That's the power of grace. It's the new legacy that God weaves into his people. If you're a brother and sister in Christ, then he is weaving new grace into your life. And he was doing that in in Jerusalem. He's doing it through Nehemiah, whose name means the Lord has comforted. He's bringing comfort. He's bringing grace into the people of God. He has arrived. We saw it last week. He rests and refocuses for three days. Why? Why? Listen, because God doesn't download his plans into our minds and then tell us go out and do them. He streams it. You pray, you rest, you refocus, because every day he's going to give you a little bit more of what he wants you to do. He's not going to tell you today all of what he wants you to do tomorrow. God just doesn't work that way. You don't need him if he does. If you're standing on the edge of somebody's ruined life and waiting for God's plan to fully come to you before you help, you're never going to move because he won't give it to you fully. He will stream it and he will unfold it as you pray and trust day after day. And when you do, you go out like Nehemiah that we saw last week. You begin to get an eyewitness. You begin gathering data. You begin seeing the ruined walls for yourself. You've only gotten it by report. You've only heard about the mess. Now you go and you meet the mess. You 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 walk around it. You ride around it. But like Nehemiah, you're going to find you're not going to be able to get very far. And we'll look at that in a minute. And you take with you a few trusted people because, listen, God doesn't rebuild walls and ruined lives through solo efforts. He just doesn't do it. If you want to be a wall builder, then you've got to see that God will bring around you a divine echo. In other words, he'll speak through you and at the same time speak through somebody else and at the same time use another means because our ears are waxy. They don't listen very well to God's word. And when our lives are in ruin, we don't hear very well. So he echoes, he resonates his word into our lives. When God begins doing that to you, friends, you know he's building your walls again. But the day came where now Nehemiah is going to gather the people of Jerusalem, the leaders and all of those, it says, look in your text, all of those who are going to do their part. He's going to gather all of them and he's going to begin to speak truth. And that's where we look in our text this morning. Verse 17, we've got to learn to speak truth to each other. Here's what he says. Then I said to them, notice even even that which seems so meaningless. I mean, what's, what can you unpack from that? Then I said to them, well, here's how you at least begin. He doesn't send a letter to them. He doesn't send a servant to them. He personally comes to them because truth has to be done in the context of relationship. It's got to be personal. Then I look at the personal pronoun said to them. Well, that's the first thing we see about how to speak truth. It's got to be done personally. It's got to be done through relationships. Remember here, you've got to remember Nehemiah. Nehemiah was from a land 800 miles to the north. He's from Persia. He was born into exile. He had never visited Jerusalem. This is his first time he's ever been to Jerusalem. These are his people, but he's not known any of them. He has come down from Persia into Jerusalem. He's left a comfortable life. He was the third most powerful person in the most powerful kingdom on the planet. He's the most powerful Jew on the planet. And he leaves Persia and he goes to Jerusalem. And yet look how he speaks to them in verse 17. We. Listen, you've got to see that we are in trouble. Let us build the wall. We will not keep suffering. Listen, he's saying, I share your suffering. I share your misery. So I'm now part of the solution with you. It just doesn't work to try to enter somebody's messy life objectively and non-relationally. You'll not be successful. But yet, that's kind of our American mindset. I know we do the Pledge of Allegiance. We slap our hands over our hearts. And we say one nation under God, indivisible. I get that. But we're the most individualistic society on the planet. Yet the Bible views the people of God as a body. It's covenantal solidarity. If I'm struggling, you ought to be struggling. If you're weeping, I ought to turn my joy into mourning. That's the way it works in covenant. And when you're struggling in your life, it ought to be impacting me and vice versa. That's the way it works in a covenant. You know, a friend of mine had a wheelbarrow of rocks. He's a landscaper. That he was getting ready to dump, but the wheelbarrow snapped back and landed right on his toe, his big toe. I remember him telling me about this, and he says, This was just two weeks ago, and he says, You know what? My whole body hurts. Well, that's the way it ought to work in the church if there's somebody here that has a bruised and bloodied toe it ought to hurt the entire body we ought to all resonate with that pain one part can affect the entire body and what nehemiah is doing is he's saying we're in this together and it's such a powerful lesson for us to see if you want to motivate If you want to motivate someone to begin rebuilding walls, friends, I can tell you the best thing you can ever do is join them in the effort. Now, as I'm saying that, it doesn't do you any good and it doesn't do me any good to just let that bounce through your mind and out. You've got to grab hold of that. That's true in anything. If anybody's presenting truth to you, unless you grab hold of it and begin saying, all right, Lord, it's pretty clear in Nehemiah 2. He he was personal. He spoke truth in the context of relationship. How do I do with that? God, I'm asking you. Expose my heart for a minute. How do I do with speaking truth in the context of relationship? Because the second principle that we're going to learn And telling truth to each other is that we've got to be realistic. Listen, I have a friend who is famous for always softening the truth to try to find the silver lining. You could have your life falling apart around you. And this friend is going to reassure you and say, it's not that big of a deal. You're going to be fine. Me, I'm like, it is a big deal. Their life's falling apart. And there's reasons for it. This isn't something you soften. You've got to be realistic. If you don't speak truth real in a realistic way, you really can't get to the bottom of the suffering. It's not going to reach. If you're up on a valley, if you're up on a mountain, And you're enjoying your life, but there's somebody down in the valley who can't even, who doesn't even know if they're going to make it from day to day. And you're up on the mountain saying, Hey, come on up. The view is great. They're not going to be able to come up. They can't climb. You've got to come down to them. That's valley living. That's incarnational ministry. Avoiding the truth to protect the person. And by the way, To protect your relationship with the person. That's often why we soften it. It doesn't motivate anybody and God never does it. Look what Nehemiah says. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates burned. Listen, if you want a fist fight with a Jew back in 445 B.C., then say something about their city. Yeah, I took a cargo load into Jerusalem, and man, that city stunk. I'll never go back there again. I couldn't stand it. All you see is rubble. You want to get a Jew angry at you? That's the fastest way to do it. Their city was everything. It was their glory. It was their honor. You'll see in a minute. It was their past, their present, and their future. It was God's gift to them. Je- Nehemiah is saying Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates burned. It'd be like you and I telling some your life is an utter mess. It's pretty realistic. But Nehemiah would not leave them there, and neither should we. You never leave somebody in the utter reality of the truth. You've got to connect them to the third point. Nehemiah spoke truth redemptively. There's some reason I'm using that word. He spoke truth redemptively. Look what he says. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. He just said, listen, your city, our city is in ruins and the gates burned. Be real with people. Don't try to soften it. Take the gloves off. Get down into the roots. Be utterly honest and realistic. But don't ever leave them there or you'll drive them into despair. You got to bring them to their hope. You got to bring them to redemption. Because God simply does not want to leave us in ruin. Friends, you know that, right? Listen, I know this this dominates my thinking all week when I'm writing these sermons. Because I know so many of you, and I know what you're walking through. And I know a lot of you are really struggling. A lot of you, the walls are down. Listen, God does not want to leave you there. And He knows what He's doing. He is the rebuilder. And the restorer, and he will bring you back. But he will use Nehemiah's in your life. And Nehemiah's, you may be sitting here, you who bring the comfort of Yahweh. You might be the Nehemiah to somebody's friend. You might be a wall builder. That's the point of the sermon. How do we this series? How do we learn to be wall builders? And what you've got to realize is your tongue, like mine, has great power. It can either bring death to people or bring life. That's what you're seeing behind me. There are no third positions. There are no third functions. You'll never see anywhere in the scripture a third function of the tongue. You're either bringing life or you're bringing death. So you bring it to Ephesians 4.25 and 4.29 and you begin to see this is how you connect people to redemption. This is how you speak truth redemptively. Let us speak. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Okay, we got that. For we are members of one another. We got that. We've already covered that in Nehemiah just now. But how do you do it? Well, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. If you think that's only profanity, you're not getting Ephesians 4.29. Should you speak profanity? Well, can you picture Jesus Christ lowering his father's reputation to the ways of this world and speaking profanity? If you can't picture that, then you shouldn't speak it. You should guard your tongue. Let your tongue bring life. But that's not all of what it means to speak corruptively. It means that you speak in a way that does not bring people to God's grace. And we're all guilty. Look what it says. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up. Be a wall builder. Build people's lives up. As fits the occasion, how are you going to know if you haven't taken your nighttime tour around the walls what the occasion is? You've got to know the walls. You've got to know the person's condition in their life to be able to fit the occasion and speak life. That it may give grace to those who hear. That's how you speak truth. Redemptively, You don't leave them in the utter reality of the mess of their lives. You bring them to hope. You bring them to what Jesus Christ can do. And when you speak truth to one another, you can't leave them in despair and hopelessness. You know, one of the things that I love to do when somebody honors me enough to tell me their stories, which I always take that seriously. That's amazing that people trust me, especially with this kind of weight in their lives here's what I do. I'm always going to do this. I sit there and pray and I go, Lord, I have no idea what to say. I'm not kidding you. Every time, Lord, I don't know what to say. Listen, if you think every pastor and every counselor comes preloaded with, here's your question, here's your answer, that's not the way it works. God has to be live in the counseling he has to be live in pastoral shepherding he has to speak new truth to you he has to speak new revelation he has to apply it in new ways lord i don't know what to say what do you want me to say but i always know this it's going to be two things one it's going to be the word of god listen i came from psychology i was educated in psychology that was my minor i know psychology and it never helps People get to the root. You're not at the root until it turns vertical between you and God. That's the root always. And psychology is great to get you on its way, but you've got to have the word of God to get you to the root. And it's the word of God that transforms your life. So I'm always going to be bringing, here's the word of God. Why? Because I'm going to connect them to grace. I'm going to connect them to what God says. But there's one other thing I'm going to bring, and that's going to lead us to the next point, And that is this. You're not alone, and you're not the first person to walk through this struggle. And let me share with you, carefully and confidentially, but let me share with you how God has rebuilt broken lives and other people. And that leads us to point number two. We must speak the truth about God. We've got to speak the truth about God. Listen, it's not enough just to speak truth to each other. You've got to speak truth about our God. And it might be the most important wall-building principle you're going to see today. What motivates God's people to rise up and build? More than anything, it's going to be the testimonies of God's power and God's goodness in your life. In your life. And when people come to me and they do reveal their stories of broken misery, I love to share the stories of what God has done to deliver his people. Nothing we say will be more important and more powerful than sharing God's faithfulness. Friends, let me underscore struggling believers. Listen, please listen. They don't need your opinions and they don't need mine. And they don't need to be handed another one of Oprah's top ten favorite books. They're just not going to work. They need the word of God and they need to be shown that God is faithful. You need to testify of God's faithfulness. When we do, it brings hope and faith back into hearts of despair. Let me show you something that I think is really interesting. You see a map behind me. It's a very simple, crude drawing. This is what Jerusalem looked like in nehemiah's day after that in the days of jesus when he walked on this earth it was hugely expanded but in nehemiah's day this is the rough extent boundary of the wall and you see the 10 gates you see on the left that he went out the valley gate and he went down around the southern portion he made it as far up the right side as to the water gate and then had to turn back Do you know why he had to turn back Because there was so much rubble in around the wall that his animal could not even walk through it. That's life. And when you walk into somebody's ruined life, you're going to see so much rubble in their life, you're not even going to know where to start. This is too big. I don't have what it takes. Here's what I hear all the time. I'm not a counselor. And what I always tell them is you don't need to be a counselor just learn to speak truth. And be real and connect them to grace and testify about your God. There is a place for counseling. There's a place for individual counseling. I got my degree in it, and Lord willing, we're going to start a Christ-centered counseling center. I believe there's a great place for it, but the most transformation I've ever seen in the people that I've pastored has been when they get into groups of men and women and they share life on life. That's transformative. Nehemiah ran into rubble. Friends, you and I will do the same. And if you're going to be a wall builder, you've got to clear the rubble before you can get back to the foundation. How do you clear the rubble? Because these stones were big. These stones were huge, and they're big in people's lives today as well. But you've got to get back to the foundation. Look what the text says. Look what 1 Corinthians says. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. There is already a foundation, and you can't lay it, and neither can I. We can't build the foundation. Its name is Jesus, and it comes when you get saved. He's the one that puts the foundation in. We build on top of it. If you're going to be a wall builder, you've got to get back to the foundation, and you've got to clear the rubble. How do you clear it? There is a backhoe, let me be ridiculous for a moment. There is a backhoe big enough to pick those stones up and fling them out of the way. And that is testifying of God's power and goodness. You clear rubble and get back to the foundation when you begin to speak about your God and begin giving evidence of his work in their lives. There's not anything more encouraging than when I tell people I can see God's hand at work in your life. He is divinely echoing, meaning, listen, he's speaking to you and he's ready to build. Join him in the process and I'm there with you. That's power. That's rubble clearing power. That's how you speak truth to one another. And it's how you speak truth about our God. And I told them, verse 18, of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. Look what he's doing. He's speaking truth about his God and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. He's saying this. I wish you were there. I wish you could have seen the king's face as the queen sat next to him. And I began to speak about going back to Jerusalem. And the king, I thought my life was in danger. And the king turned his favor upon me. Why? Because God, our God, holds us. The hearts of the kings in his hand and he directs them like a water course he irrigates his people the way he chooses through whom he chooses you ever noticed i read this this morning in my time with the lord have you ever noticed how often the psalmist implores us to sing new songs we sang about that this morning actually it's because, listen, How do you sing, why do you sing a new song? It's because God's constantly giving you and me more evidence of his faithfulness, more evidence of his power, more evidence of his goodness. He's always saying, sing new songs, because that's how we capture that and how we testify of him. You need to be a songwriter. In fact, let me take it a little further. Don't go to bed tonight until you write a song. And it might be a prayer of recognition. God, you worked in my life today. I almost had a car accident. You preserved my life. That means you've got a purpose for me because when your purposes are done, you're going to bring me home. What is it you want me to do? It might be a blog that you write. It might be a testimony on Facebook. It might be literally a new song. It might be somebody you grab before you leave here and say, listen, I gotta tell you what God's been doing in my life. It's been blowing away my mind. You speak of God with new songs and you're gonna begin clearing rubble out of your own life and the people's lives all around you. That's how you do it. It might be your own story you share with a fellow struggler. It might be somebody at work. It might be a classmate. Wherever, whatever it is, what can possibly anybody do to refute your testimony? Listen, I know a lot of you are a little bit scared when I suggest you need to be Go into your friends today and you need to lay out the plan of salvation. Take them through Romans Road. Walk them through the ACTS of worship. Listen, that would inspire anxiety in most of us. But how hard is it to sing a new song and testify about God? Nobody can refute that. It's your story of what God's doing. And it's powerful. The Lord has brought about our vindication, Jeremiah wrote. Come, let us declare in Zion, that's Jerusalem, the work of the Lord our God. We've got to declare cornerstone. What is God doing in our midst? Vindication, he's freeing us from the things that trap us. And they said, verse 18b, look at the power of this. They said, let us rise up and build. You want to motivate people to rebuild Speak truth to them, and then speak the truth about your God. That's the power. So they strengthen their hands for the good work. But there's one more way that we speak truth, and this is hugely important. We speak truth to each other, we speak truth about our God, and we speak the truth to those who will oppose us. When I worked in a psychiatric treatment center years and years ago before I came into ministry, I realized quickly, God got me that job for a reason. And that reason is always for the kingdom of God and his glory. Always. There's not anybody, any Christian in this room that has a different mission. Your mission, whether you're in secular employment or ministry, is always the same. Declare your God and expand the kingdom. Bring him glory. That's what you do. And so I began to take my Bible into work, not because I'm a Bible thumper. I just wanted it. I needed it. I was constantly battling with the worst cases of the world. And I needed it on my lunch breaks to refresh my mind. I needed to renew my mind. I wanted it in case any of my fellow counselors or any of the clients said to me, what's the reason for your hope? I want this because it's the letters of the king. I have no authority. God does. And here's the gospel of peace. So I would take this in, and all of a sudden, I got a got a message in my box at work, and it was my boss, Bill, the director, I said, come here, I want to see you. So I went into his office. That's not a good thing. I don't know if I've ever been called into the director's office for a good reason. Been in there a couple times. He says, Tim, I've been hearing that you're, you've got your Bible and that you're telling people about your religion. He's not a Christian. I said, Yeah. I am, but I'm being respectful about it. He goes, well, I appreciate that, but you can't do that anymore. So don't bring your Bible anymore. I'm at a crossroads. This is my mission. This is my life. What am I going to do? Because I could lose my job. And all of a sudden, the words of Jesus from Matthew chapter 28 I've been given, Jesus says, all authority by my father. And I am sending you to teach, to preach, to make disciples and baptize them. I've got the authority conferred through Jesus from God, the father. And I can't stop what I'm doing, but I need to be respectful. So I didn't bring the Bible. I started wearing t-shirts with Christian verses on it. <laughs> it's all right. I'll find a way. And I began trying to do the best work I could. I began to try to excel with my ministry through my employment. And I got another note in the box from Bill. It says, come here, I want to see you again. So, Lord, I don't know what's going on. I get in there and he says, you're still doing it, aren't you? I said, I don't have my Bible. You can't talk about your religion. What do you say? this is who I am. This is the hope that I have for the people here. So I said, I will be very respectful. And I lived, tried to live the fragrance of Christ in such a way that people would ask me. And when they asked me, I was able to lead a couple of the kids to the Lord and give them hope. That's legal. If they ask you, you could tell them. So I lived in such a way, tried to, that they would ask me. That's how you speak truth. You speak truth even to those who will oppose you because listen, when you begin rebuilding the walls of broken people, you got to hear this, I guarantee you opposition's going to come. It's going to come. It's a guarantee. And when these enemies come, our only weapon is truth. Listen, your weapon's not sarcasm. It's not slander. It's not... Rebellion and defiance, it's truth. And we wield it powerfully. Look at verse 19. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, I'm going to tell you the rest of it, but look at this. When they heard of it, these three enemies, we've already met two of them. We've already met Sanballat and Tobiah. And let me take you a little deeper dive into Samballot. Listen, here's Jerusalem. You've got to the north, the land of Samaria, and it had a governor. And the governor was Samballot. His name means this. Remember this. His name means enemy in secret. He's an enemy of the Jews. He wanted a weak, ruined, disgraced Jerusalem. Because a weak... Jerusalem is a controllable Jerusalem, and he can keep the people of God in subjugation. So Sam Ballett, the ringleader, reminds us, listen, it it bears relevance to today because he points to our greatest enemy, Christian, Satan we've already met Tobiah, Tobiah the Ammonite. You've got to the north Sanballat. You go east of Jerusalem across the Jericho River. And now you've got the land of Ammon. And the governor for the land of Ammon was Tobiah. And Tobiah was a willing servant. He was a vassal in submission to Sanballat. And he worked with Sanballat all through Nehemiah. And he points to our second enemy. It's our own flesh. That part of us that still resists the glory of God. Fights against God. Wars against the Holy Spirit. And then now we're introduced to a new enemy, a third enemy. His name is Geshem, the Arab. Geshem controls the southwest part below Jerusalem. He's an Arab. He's a ruler, very powerful ruler, ruler over the whole region of nomadic tribes. And you've got to see this for a minute. Geshem... Controls the access through the little narrow land bridge of Israel. If if you want to get to Assyria from Egypt, or if you want to get to Egypt from Assyria, you've got to pass through Israel. Or else go way around. If you go way around, you're going to hit the Mediterranean Sea in one direction and the impassable Arabian Desert in the other. It's a land bridge. And Geshem controlled the access north to south. He was incredibly wealthy, incredibly successful, incredibly powerful. His commercial gains were astronomical. And here a revived Jerusalem would disrupt his trade routes and the flow of commerce. He didn't want Jerusalem to be revived. And he points to the third enemy we all have in this room. And that's the world system that fights and opposes the agenda of God. And when these enemies come, look what they're going to do, verse 19. They jeered at us and despised us, and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Listen, do you have friends that are so embroiled and enmeshed in the world? They love to party. They love money. They love the corporate ladder. They want to go up and up. You have friends like this. When you begin realizing that God's taking you the other direction, down the ladder into humility, just like Christ, who did not count equality with God something to be grasped, he let it go, and he became the lowest of the low. He became the servant of all. And when you begin to see this and your friends begin to see this, listen, they're not going to understand. What do you mean you go to church every Sunday morning? What do do you mean you're going on a mission trip? What do you mean you're serving God and you don't have time to go with us? What do you mean you don't want to go out and get drunk? This is what the people of God don't do. And when you don't do them, your world's friends are going to despise you. They're going to jeer you. They're not going to understand For the Lord loves Jerusalem and he wants us to be a people for himself. Look at verse 20. Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion or rights or claim in Jerusalem. Listen, we don't talk like that. When's the last time you've said to your friends who are despising you, You have no portion, right, or claim in my life. We don't say that. So what does that mean? If we're going to bring the very important, every word important word of God and put it into our lives, you've got to learn what this means. It means this, you have no portion, Nehemiah is saying to his enemies. Jerusalem's not yours. It's God's and it's ours. You have no portion of it. None of it belongs to you. Psalm 87, 2. The Lord loves the gates of Jerusalem, of Zion, more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. They've got the portion, the Jews of God. And Christian, we need to learn to say the same. God has chosen you before, listen, before he created the universe. Well, how can that be? Well, you've got to get in your mind the reality that God does not exist inside time like we do. He exists outside of time. He created time. tomorrow. He can see you as if he's seeing you today and like he saw you a million years ago. He chose you and he chose me, brother and sister, before he created the universe. Listen, he's always had his eye on you. You are the apple of his eye. You know what that means? You ever been in a sandstorm and your eyes closed to protect Your eyelids close to protect your eyes. That's what it means, the pupil of your eye. You're the pupil and God closes to protect you when these enemies come. That's the truth. You've got to speak the truth about your God and you've got to speak the truth to your enemy. You're that important to God. You are the beloved of God. He loves you. He takes pleasure in you. You ever thought through that? Listen, who do you take pleasure in? God takes pleasure in you, Christian brother and sister. When he gets to receive the text of your prayer, and when he sees you walking into his word and meditating on it, he takes pleasure in the relationship. That's how you speak truth to the enemy. You have no portion. You know, the first time I ever had a conversation with my wife at college, it was this. We took a three-hour class. And in that class, there was a break in the middle of it, and I went to the bookstore, and I went and I bought a Tootsie Roll, chocolate Tootsie Roll lollipop, and I came back. She didn't even know my name, but I had had my eye on her for a while. She's a twin, and beautiful twins always capture your eye. I didn't care which one I got. just went, No, that's not true. <laughs> she will tell you that's not true very quickly. So I brought this Tootsie Roll lollipop back in the middle of this break, and I put it down on her desk, and I said, I thought I would just get you some from the bookstore. You know what she did? Two things. Your name was what? That was humiliating. <laughs> Secondly, she wrote in her notebook, hmm. Because she knew what I didn't know. She knew right there she was going to marry me. Do you know what she did with that t- t- that uh, chocolate Tootsie Roll lollipop? She kept it and put it in her flower bouquet and walked down the aisle to marry me. We still have it today. Listen, and as beautiful as that story is, and it is infinitely better, is the God who knew you before he created the universe and could not wait until you walked down that aisle to have a relationship with him. That's the God who loves you. That's how you speak truth when you're doubting, when the enemies of lies come against you. When you worry about your shame, when you worry about how, God, can you love me after I messed up again? Yes, he can. Because he's chosen you. And then Nehemiah said that these enemies have no rights. They have no authority over them. And the same is true for us. Jesus Christ has freed us. Listen, brother and sister, he's freed us from the power of Satan. He's given us a new heart. He's taken us out of this world system to serve God and to be his people. These enemies have no rights. They have no truth to speak to us. And we've got a lot of truth to speak to them. We're his blood-bought church. Where is treasured possession, which he has engraved. Listen, he has engraved you on his palm. You know why you do that, right? Don't forget. I'm going to write it with a pen so you won't forget. Well, God says, I'm never going to forget you. And not because I'm amnesic. I'm going to show you every time you doubt. Look, you're on my palm. I've engraved you. I can't forget you. That's truth, that we belong to God. And when the enemies come against you and you begin to doubt again and you begin to lose hope that your walls will ever be rebuilt or that you could ever do any good for anybody's messy life, this is the truth you speak because that's Satan energizing your flesh and this world system to make you discouraged and ruined. But Nehemiah has one final piece of truth for the enemies. He says, you have no claim You have no memorial. Not only have you no portion, you have no right, you have no claim. Jerusalem's not your land. Jerusalem, friends, is a metaphor for the church, the people of God. Satan has no claim on us. There's nothing in us that he can say, you're mine. God's taken us away from Satan and made us his own. And we will build God's city again in Satan, world, and flesh, you will never be part of it. How do you speak truth? Listen, it's Satan. You have no claim over us. We are no longer under your control. Jesus has redeemed us world. You have no portion with us. You have nothing that could truly satisfy our souls. Listen, go buy the world's goods and breathe the world's air and watch your lungs deflate and your satisfaction plummet. There's nothing in this world that can fill the, the spot in your heart that only God can occupy. And flesh, you have no right to us anymore. We're dead to you. We're going to learn to dress in clothing of righteousness. That's truth. And that's what we speak as wall builders to our enemies. That's the truth you give to those whose lives you're rebuilding and who are doubting that it could ever be done. Ninety years they lived. Did I tell you this? I think I did a long time ago, not today. They tried to rebuild this. Look at Ezra. They tried to rebuild the walls and the gates and they failed miserably because the enemies came. You want to know the worst despair you can get? Take a Christian brother and sister who says, I've got to have my life rebuilt and tries and the enemies come and totally drop those walls again. You don't get despair that deep until you find those situations. But that's how we speak truth. Let me tell you one more thing, and this is really important, about our enemies. Let me explain very, very briefly, I'm almost done, why their enemies were so angry. Why Tobias and Ballet and Geshem, why they were so fiercely opposed because they point to Satan, the world, and the flesh. Let me tell you why they're so active in this entire book all the way to the very end of the book and why they're going to be so active in your life as well. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 25, you see behind me, there is an amazing prophecy. Here's what it says. I'll read just a portion. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word... To restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of the Anointed One. And Daniel gives a specified number of weeks and years. Do you know what that's saying? From that day where King Artaxerxes said to Nehemiah, you've got my permission, here's my letters, here's my resources, here's my soldiers, go back and rebuild Jerusalem. It set the clock in motion for the coming of the Messiah and the enemies of God were fighting fiercely. That's why demonic activity was the greatest in human history when Jesus Christ walked the planet. They were doing everything they could to foil his mission. They're going to do everything they can when you rise up to build somebody's life. They will find a way to try to discourage you and frighten you and demean you. And if we're going to be the people of God who are wall builders, then we've got to learn to speak truth to one another, encourage one another, And all the more as you see the day approaching, meet together for that reason. We've got to learn to speak truth about our God, testify of what God is doing in your life and through the lives of others, and we've got to speak truth to the enemies when they come. That is our only power. If there were more weapons at your disposal, I would give it to you. There is no more, and it's enough. Are you ready to build? Build? Because next week, the building starts. Wait till you see the gates that they're going to rebuild. It has everything to do with our salvation, sanctification, and glorification. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for all that you're teaching us. Lord, I pray that we would learn to be wall builders, that every single one of us would rise up to build And realize that we are a body, we are a solidarity, we are a covenant. We all have responsibility to rebuild broken walls and repave streets of peace. But teach us how to do it like Nehemiah did it. Because in 52 days, he did what 90 plus previous years failed. He knew how to speak truth. Teach us to do the same. We love you, we thank you, in Jesus' name, amen.